Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. I hope you guys are all ready for a masterclass on masterclass because we are incredibly excited today to welcome the CEO of masterclass, David Rogier. I'm sure you guys all know of masterclass, but masterclass is the live streaming platform that lets anybody learn from the world's best. Uh, David was born and raised in LA. He started the entrepreneurial bug bit him early. He started his first search company, I believe when he was a teenager, which got acquired. He then went on to study political science at WashU, um, and after WashU, he worked for Tesco, the British retailer, helping them come to the United States. He then came to the farm to Stanford to get his MBA, and after his MBA, um, he was hired by and invested in the by by the mul- much beloved Michael Deering, um, and he started then Masterclass in 2015. Um, Masterclass has made a mark in lifelong learning, really becoming one of the breakout companies in lifelong learning, um, where anybody can get access to luminaries such as Martin Scorsese on filmmaking, or Serena Williams for tennis, or Stephen Curry for basketball, um, or Margaret Atwood for writing. The list goes on and on. And so we are incredibly honored, but don't leave Stanford, everybody, even though there are icons out there. Um, we're incredibly honored to have David join us at ETL. So welcome, David. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. I, I, grew, I, grew, I grew up on these podcasts, so it, it's very, I'm very, I am grateful to be invited to speak. Well, then you know the power of these podcasts because they, it really is a full circle moment, I think, when we have somebody who grew up on the podcasts come back to be on the podcasts. Um, and what I'd love to do is start from the beginning because you know, you've raised a staggering amount of capital. You've raised $240 million. And I think oftentimes it's so easy in our culture to laud the, the breakout companies like Masterclass, which almost seem like inevitabilities um, when you look at it in retrospect. But I feel like that does a disservice to the journey that you have actually gone through. And so I would love it if you could to take us back, not when you raised 240, but just you know, when you're before that $2 million check or during that $2 million check, um, when you're in the stages of starting the company out, can you shed some light into what it felt like at the very beginning? What was that process like when you were starting Masterclass and how did you come up with the idea? Yeah. Um, okay. So after school, I went and worked for Michael Deering and I was, I was, I was working for him. Um, I was investing in startups and after a while I, I miss build, I miss, I miss building things and I miss creating things. Um, and I talked to Michael about it and Michael, um, said, well, why don't you propose something to me? And I was like, okay, what if I go work on a bunch of, I, a bunch of things I have in my mind ideas. Um, and I could use some funding. And Michael funded me, which was amazing. And cause I didn't have, you know, like a locked in idea or a locked in team or anything. And, um, so, you know, I was thrilled, right? I mean, this is a chance of a lifetime. So once in a lifetime opportunity, it was also terrifying because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I knew this was going to be a chance I wasn't going to get again. And so I felt my own pressure without any structure to think of a great idea. 
And there are lots of books on it. There's lots of pot, pot there's lots of podcasts on it, but there's no, uh, there's not one pr- one way that for sure works. And so I started, I started thinking of my own needs in my life. I started thinking of trends happening in the world. Um, I started talking to other folks to hear needs of their own. And I, I was trying all those ideas and somebody gave me a great piece of advice. She said, choose something that even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. That was an amazing constraint. And I think sometimes having those constraints can make you more creative. And so then for me, it was like the optimization of a set of sales, you know, flow and funnel wasn't going to be the thing. I had to think, what are the things that actually drive me in life? And, um, you know, I thought a lot about my grandmother. So I was in part raised by her. Um, and I remember, um, in second grade, I would always stay, I would always go on the way back from school. I'd always stay with, I would stay with her after school. I remember in second grade, I go to her house and I would complain to her about all the math homework I had, which obviously I didn't have a lot because I'm like nine years old and my grandma, I'm complaining to her and I'm, I'm whining about it. And my grandma tells me, I want to tell you a story, which is like the last thing you want to hear when you're like nine years old. And my grandma starts, she was 16 years old, living at the, in the time in Krakow in, in Poland, her and her mom go on a family vacation. Dad's going to join, but stays home a couple extra days to finish some work. While they're on vacation, the Nazis invaded. They killed her father, took everything. She flees to, to New York city. The only job her and her mom can get is on the factory floor of factory. They're working side by side, and my grandma decides she wants to become a doctor. She finds every medical school in the state of New York and applies to them. She gets a no from every single one. She applies to every every school she can. She gets a no from every single one, keeps working in the factory, applies again. She starts calling the deans of admissions and asking, why am I not getting in? And they all hang up on her, except for this one guy who says, I'll be honest with you. You have three strikes against you. You're a... a a woman, a foreigner, and you're Jewish, hangs off the phone. She keeps working the factory, applies again the next year, and gets into one school and becomes a pediatrician. And I'm eight or nine years old, and I'm staring at her because this is intense stuff to be hearing from just having complained about math homework. And she goes, David, the point I'm trying to make to you is education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. And that lesson stuck with me hard. And I realized if I have this one chance, I want to try to build something that other people can't take away from others. With that as a constraint, like all of a sudden, the world of what I was going to work on got much got, got much smaller. And I knew it was going to be in education. And then it was about evolving and iterating and figuring out what was that going to be inside education. Well, I, I love this idea that the constraint created focus. Because it sounded like it sounds like it might have been sort of this existential crisis without the constraint where you you were funded and you could do anything and that was a bit unwieldy. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think having constraints can breed can breed creativity. Um, yeah. And, and do you so some people say when you're starting out with the idea to try three or four different ideas in parallel and see which one works. Others say just focus on one idea and run it until you know it's going to succeed or fail and then shift to another. Do you have a philosophy on that? I was trying a few different ideas at the same time. I think, I think in the beginning stages, 
that's totally okay to do because there's sometimes you're working on one idea and there's like a delay from when you're going to get a, a, a outcome back result back. So you're trying to test something or running a poll. So having a few ideas, it keeps you busy. And there might be things you figure out in one that you like, oh, I can bring to the other. There also can be ones where you're working on it. You're like, I'm just not that into this. Like I'm getting bored already. And if you're already bored at the beginning stages, put down the idea. How do you, and, and and so that's a good heuristic. When you're bored, that's the re, that's the time to to put the idea down and yes. keep pursuing the <laughs> yes, other ones. Yes, because this and, is going to be an idea that you're going to work on for if if this is, if this is successful for potentially the rest of your life. And you know, I think most ideas, though, when you're starting out, are good ideas, um, but very few actually succeed because you hit sort of this end of the runway, and either you get bored, or you run out of time, or you run out of cash. And so, so much of it is just deciding what you choose to focus on when you're starting out. Um, so it's once you had this idea, this enduring sense of purpose against this idea, how did you decide what to focus on um, in order to take off? What was did you have a minimally viable product or a minimally viable goal or some crit- minimal criticality that you were shooting for? And how did you choose which metric did you choose and how did you choose that metric versus others? Yeah, I mean, it took some time from knowing the space and what I was trying to do to coming up with the masterclass idea, right? The idea of masterclass. And that was, you know, user interviews, mock, 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 to mock stuff up, to do some test shoots and things like this, right? So that, all that took some time to kind of hone in on that, right? But, and then what, what ended up doing was the advice of Roy Bahat, who's an early investor of ours, who said, you need to create, think of this as a science experiment come up with the five things that have to be true for this to work. Okay. I have to get these types of people at the top level to be able to agree to do a class. I have to then prove I can make a good class with these types of people. I have to then show that people want to buy this class, right? I've then show that I can do it at scale, right? And that you can then like build an organization that will last forever on it, right? So you, and you start thinking this, you say, okay, how can I prove each point? And you don't necessarily have to work at them in, in, in one, two, three in order. So for example, as I'm working to sign, you know, one study I really honed and working to sign folks like uh, Martin Scorsese and a Christina Aguilera and a Steph Curry. Okay, I'm going to hustle. I'm going to cold call. But at the same time, I can run tests on and polls and you know polls and surveys. Would you be interested more in a Dr. Dre class or in a Barack Obama class? How much would you pay for it? So you can start working like on the whole science experiment, and you don't have to work at it just one step at a time. And you would not recommend working on one step at a time. It sounds like you you rec- it, there's there's virtue in making it iterative and constantly in, um, adjusting each of the levers. Yes. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. I think you have to be very select, though, about what stuff you do spend time on. There's a whole lot of things when you create the idea at that stage that can be a, can take your time and, and, su- and suck up that time, which doesn't help the core idea or help test the core idea. And how do you know when something is a time suck versus an investment? Something that you should kill versus something that you should feed? Are you thinking of like which idea to stop working on? No, I'm thinking about these five different levels, these attributes. Yeah, Yeah, I think for that, you have to like go back and think what are the things that are going to make this a success or not and really push yourself on it. So for example, if I – you can spend a year of your life optimizing the healthcare plan of your employees. There are a thousand options to provide for it. 
in the beginning stages, the success of your company isn't going to be you chose healthcare plan A or healthcare plan B. So you think, okay, what are the things that are going to actually define your success? It's going to, you know, and, and so, and you really have to stri- really strip that down. One of the things I did was I actually discussed it with other friends and other investors, my list of five things and had them push, had them push me on it. And I remember talking to a friend who was like, the first thing you got to work on is getting these people to actually teach. Without that, there is no idea. Right. And you're like, shoot, that guy's right. That, that guy's right. And so you have to be very strict with yourself and really push yourself on it. And, you know, I think everybody who's interacted, David, with Masterclass loves it, but it's not the first lifelong learning platform. This, this space has been around for a long time um, in various incarnations. If you had to attribute it to one or two things, why do you think Masterclass broke out whereas others didn't? I think it's misunderstanding of, of, of it's a misunderstanding or a that a misunderstanding that education and learn and learning are the same thing. They're very different. Ask everybody who's watching this if you love to learn. Almost all of you will say yes. If I ask if you loved school, most of you will probably say no. But then you'll each say that there's three professors or school teachers that changed your life. And, and, and I think in that, uh, you know, contradiction or human contradiction is part of the idea that we as a society think education, first of all, stops after school stops. And we think that education is only if you're in a classroom, basically, when I think the rate of change has increased so much in the world, the education, like what you learned in school, it used to last you for your entire, entire life. That's no, that isn't, that isn't the case anymore. Now we have to learn every day and we have to take charge of our own learning. And to do that, you want to learn in a way that you're going to enjoy. You want to learn in a way that doesn't feel all the pressure of a bad class, you want, it's the best parts of it. Right. And, and in there is the intersection of entertainment and learn and learning. And I think that's our secret, our secret is we were able to figure out that kind of space and that kind of, that's such a beautiful and such an unintuitive in truth. I think that I never really um, realized until now is, 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 was that unintuitive truth, something that you always knew, or was it something that came out of this discovery work in iterating with, you know, with users and customers? I, I think I didn't deep, deep down. I knew it, but I, I couldn't articulate it. I, um, I love to learn and school was rough for me. And, you know, and, I, and so I, I couldn't rectify those things. I love to learn. I didn't like taking classes on MOOCs. Why? Right. Um, and, and so it took the user interviews, the tests, to be like, ah, like, like that, you know, to understand why, if that makes sense, or the how for it. And after you had that discovery of the how, did you know that Masterclass was going to be a success at that moment? And if not, when was the moment that you knew that Masterclass was going to succeed and how long did it take to get there? Yeah. So, you know, um, skipping a bunch of steps, we brought, we brought, we brought on a team, um, co-founder joined, and we launched in May of tw- of twenty fifteen with uh, about with about five classes, and this has like been my work now for probably two or three years. 
And so I am, I mean, so excited to get it on the world. Of course, I'm nervous, right? But I think everybody in the world is going to want to know about this, right? Because it's been all I've known for the past two, two or three years, right? And, um, and we get ready to launch. And I remember one of the guys on our team got me an extra phone charger because he's like, your phone's going to ring off the hook because you, you have been in stealth. People are going to know about it. You're going to ring off the hook. We, we launched the first day. And I expect sales to be very high because the press is going to know about it. Everybody's going to know about it, right? So the first day will be really high. First day is not high. It is not high at all. And I'm like, we are screwed. I went home and I don't often do this, but like I cried. Because I'm like, I got all these people on board. Uh, Serena Williams, James Pat, James Pat, James Patterson, Annie Leibovitz, Usher, Dustin Hoffman. And I'm going to have to go to them now and tell them, thanks for belief, thanks for your faith in us, but this, this isn't going to work. And I called my parents and they're like, you got to fake it until up until you make it. Like you can't, you know, you, you want up until you find a solution for this, you got to act tough. Next day I go to the office and I run into someone on our marketing team and he has a big smile on his face. I'm like, why are you smiling? He's like, this is going to be a big business. And I'm like, wait, what? And he and the guy was looking at our advertising response rates and our conversion rates. He's like, we, this is going to scale. And our second day was above our first day. And I was like, oh, wait, hold on. If, if the curve is going to keep going, like this might work. And then our third day and our fourth day, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this, like sales are increasing the company. I'm like, ah. Um, and, and so probably the first day I thought, first day we launched, I thought this wasn't going to work. On the second day, I knew it was going to be a big business. And it was two years before that first day launch, two years post when you had that conversation with Michael Deering. That oh oh from from the point I talked to Michael Deering, that was probably roughly three years. That was three years. Yeah. Okay, wow, that is terrific. Um, and um, and then and and that metric that you knew was it sales? So oftentimes people I think wrestle with: do they focus on monetization? Do they focus on growth? Do they focus on engagement? Are, are any one of those fine or? Um, was there one that stood out for you? I think you have to figure out what what is you're trying to achieve. We we needed to know that we could reach people at scale, and so for us, it was about like our LTV to CAC. Like, mm-hmm. can I profitably reach folks, and then how much room do I have on that? And so we saw that we had lots of room. We saw we had lots of room. Do you have a vision of what Masterclass will become in ten years, or do you operate where you don't think that far out, and you're just trying to respond? to what you need to do in the next six months? We talk about internally as a hundred year plan. Um, and I like talking about it as a hundred year plan because I like to get us out of the weeds, out of the optimization for a month or a quarter and really think long-term. And it's about making it possible for anybody to learn from the best. Imagine if you can go back in time and take a class from the Wright brothers. Even if 80% of what they figured out was wrong, it'd be fascinating. And so part of our mission is to be able to create that. So in the future, that actually exists. So to me, when I think about 100 years out, right, it's less about what does the site look like or what, what is the tech and the apps we're using, but it's how do we become a staple in every home on the planet and my dream would be, and hopefully it's not 100 years less, somebody who has never had exposure to these people takes one of our classes, becomes inspired, and comes back to actually teach. And do you, how, what do you think edu- – well, I don't know if the right term is education or learning. And maybe there's a distinction then in that vision. 
but do you view yourself as disrupting fundamentally how education is going to operate in, let's say, 30 years? Um, and if so, is, is there a desire to disrupt uh, traditional education as it exists today? I think the space we're occupying is the, is the learning space. So I think wanting to own that and owning the intersection of entertainment and and learning to me is is that's the space we own. I think less about other people in the space or in the market. There is always going to be a role for intensive education. There's always going to be a role for that. So it's less that. It's just I think we don't we don't have a school for the rest of our lives. We don't have a school for life after college and what that school looks like isn't going to be like the school that we attended. It's going to have a different form. It's not good. There's not going to be tests or quizzes. It's going to be something to help you learn for the rest of your life, which means you have to, it has to bring joy back to you. Well, you know, David, I, I I know, I think that's great. Um, and and I, I know that you have all these iconic masters on masterclass, but I understand that you're also a master yourself of really great advice. Um, having gone through this experience too. And so not sure that's true, but that's that's very nice to say. I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, to, to, I wanted to have a little David masterclass for our students um, and kick that off first by asking, you know, what advice do you, most of our students right now are 20 or like in their late teens, early 20s. Um, what advice would you have when you're at that stage in terms of career advice, in terms of deciding what you should do? I think the first five or 10 years of your life in your career your job is to figure out what is greatness. And what, and what I mean by that is working with a bunch of different types of people in a bunch of different fields and, and areas and figuring out this is what a great CFO looks like. This is what a great CMO looks like. This, this is great unit economics. And the reason is, is in the beginning, at least for me, I didn't, I didn't know what that looked like. So in your first jobs, right, what I did was like if somebody thought the same way I did, I assumed that was right, which is very egotistical. As like months progress, you realize, hey, there's somebody who's doing something that I wouldn't have done, but it logically makes sense. Oh, that's kind of impressive, right? And you learn, oh, maybe that's what great looks like. The third step is you meet somebody who does something that you don't understand or you don't agree with and it works really well and you're like, wait a second. Maybe that's greatness. And it takes that evolutions. And why that's so helpful is it helps you figure out who are the people that you want to work with because you now know what greatness you know feels like. It helps you when you want to uh, work with other people, when you hire other people, but also gives you a sense when you're in a business that's doing very well, there's a lot of things that are intangibles that you want to understand because you're going to see that in your own life. So that's, I think, like my first piece of advice. Um, so much so that I would prioritize prioritize that over almost any other thing in your jobs. I'd prioritize that over how much money they're going to pay you. I'd I'd prioritize that over your job title. In your first years of your life, it's about learning, I mean, as much as you can in your jobs. That's like my first piece of advice for that. I think in entrepreneurship, it's a little different. I I think in entrepreneurship, um, before jumping in, it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do at least professionally. I think I have lost friends. I've put on weight. Um, I've been stressed at a level I didn't know existed. Um, you can't get it out of your head. Um, it's re- it, it is, and there are really dark days, and it's really brutal and hard. And you have to be okay with that and accept that. Now, on the other side, 
it's also the best thing I've ever done. You realize the self-confidence in yourself that you gain from it. The, f- the feeling of having impact with pe- uh, on a scale is addicting and fulfilling. Working with people that are the best in the world at what they do it, it's just a high in life. And so it is single-handedly, the, it's like this is the best job I ever had. It's also the most difficult job I ever had. And you have to be okay with that. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's very hard to leave. I mean, it's certainly the most engaging and intriguing experience it sounds like you could have. And, you know, in those dark times, I think that is when you also are, it forces you to open up to ha- to get help and to get advice when you normally wouldn't. And I think advisors uh, can play key roles in, um, especially if you're navigating into areas that you don't, you don't know how to navigate into before. Um, I understand I, you have I, some I, good I, advice on that. And so I'm very I strong want, opinions. On okay. It. Okay. Can you share your advice on advisors? How, yeah, how my, do yeah, you, my advice on advisors. Yeah. I did it wrong at first. What I did in advisors, I was like, I know lots of smart, lots of smart people. I'm going to ask them advice on every decision I have to make. If you ask three smart people or five smart people for advice, you'll get like a hundred different thoughts and opinions. And it is paralyzing because these are th- smart people, right? And so what I realized is you need to, in the entrepreneurship journey, in your whole path and journey, you want like two advisors that you kind of tell everything to. And you want advisors that have a couple stages ahead of you. And then what you want are people that have strong points of view. Because what you're actually, I think, asking them for is not advice in the situation. There's no way they're going to have all the context, like know exactly what to do. What you're asking them for is a, what you want is a strong point of view that you haven't thought of. And you want two people that do not think the same. So you get more diverse, more expansion of, uh, of ideas and diversity among it. Because what you're actually asking them to do is show you the rest of the chessboard. It's almost like when you're an entrepreneur, you can only see a couple squares around you. And what you're asking is not where to move your piece, but is for them to like unhide the rest of the board or imagine that in a computer game you're playing, the, the rest of the world or whatever it is. That's what you're ask, asking for because then you're going to be like, oh, I didn't know that was an option. Oh, I could do that. Oh, I'm just going I'm, I'm to I'm go to that square instead. I love that, that, you know, the biggest blind spot is the things that you don't even know that you don't even know. And just getting that visibility is really where, where the, the insight is. That's terrific. Uh, thank you, David. Yeah. Um, David, I know you've been pretty open about talking about having a stutter and, the, yeah. and, and, and your experience with that. And I find that far too few leaders do talk about that. And so if you can, I would love to ask about what is your, what can you talk about the experience of having a stutter? Can you talk about what your relationship is like with your stutter and what's the best advice that you've received or that you would want to give to others, either with a stutter or with some involuntary situation that they have to navigate with? So I stutter. Um, you guys have probably heard it all the way. Um, I stutter ever since I was a kid. It was much worse when I was a kid, um, which is common. Um, it was, uh, especially early on in life, it was very difficult. Um, I was teased a lot for it at school. Um, and it's it's really frustrating to not only not be able to express yourself, which is really frustrating, but it's really frustrating to have an idea you want to express. And people, when you when you stutter, they don't focus on your idea. They focus on the stutter. So to realize even if I can get the idea out, they're not going to hear it because they're just going to focus on how the words came out. Um, I really think a lot my my parents and my brother. My parents basically had a rule for us that they weren't going to let stuttering it wasn't going to be allowed as an excuse for not doing anything. 
So, for example, when my parents had friends over for dinner, um, the expectation was my brother and I join them and engage in adult conversation, even at like age eight. And the idea was, is like, you're not blaming not participating on your stutter. Um, and, and, and I think that had a big impact on my brother and I, because it made it seem like, well, if that's not an excuse at home, then like, you know, <laughs> when can I use that as an excuse? And I remember I told my grandparents that I stuttered and I was being teased in school and they gave me a hug and said, so, <laughs> because to them who had, you know, the other side had been in concentration camps and, you know, I mentioned my grant, I talked about the other side that escaped to them. You're, you think a stutter is bad. I mean, you want to talk about bad things in life. And so, you know, it was always with a hug, but it was like, that's not going to stop you. So, um, there are times that are really hard, but, and I've gone to speech, th- I've done a bunch of work on it and, and therapy, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's something I have for the rest of my life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm going to turn it over to the student questions in a bit, um, but I'm going to ask one more question before I, I do, which is one of the um, focuses for the ETL for, for this year is around principle-driven entrepreneurship. And I, I would, I would want, I want to invite you to speak to if that, honestly, yeah. if you guys do use principles in time. driving entrepreneurship. I also understand that there was a situation in your uh, one of your fundraises um, where, 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 where principles came to play with a prospective investor. I don't know to what extent you can share, but if you, to whatever extent you can, I want to welcome it on, or, or any real life situation that caused where, where you had to invoke your principles in making decisions and what you did. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I encourage all you to do is to really think about zoom forward ahead in your life and say, Hey, if I'm on my deathbed, what do I have to do in my life to not regret anything? And for me, that is, and that, then that can change over your life. But for me right now, that's, I don't want to be on my deathbed and think I didn't try to make the world a bit better. And there are times I, I, I think I'm living that life and there's times I'm not right. And so then for me from there, I could stem some principles that I, I believe in. And so one of the things we try to do at the company is anytime we have to make a big decision or something hard, we list out first our principles and that can change. So when the pandemic, when the pandemic struck, we came up with our list of prints of, of our print, our, our principles. When there's a hard decision we're going to make on funding or expanding this area, we also do that. And there was one case where, um, we were doing a fundraising round and we got a, uh, approached for, you know, um, a raise and we got a, you know, um, a bunch of term, a bunch of, of investors want to invest. And one of the investors who we saw that we, you know, we thought was going to be a really, a real, a really great fit. We, we found out and back channeling them that they did not match and live our, our, our principles. And even though the terms are great, they really didn't. And I went to the board and I said, Hey, look, I know these are offering really fantastic terms, but I don't, this isn't who we are and it's not who I want to work with. And I was a little nervous about that because, you know, you can imagine a board being like tough luck, David, you just choose the people that are going to give you the best terms. And the board was, my board was amazing about it and supportive about it and said, we have your back. And I called up that investor and that fund and I told them, I'm not taking the money. 
And I thought if I'm really going to live our principles and our values, and I was pushed on this, you know, by, you know, um, a close friend and, and, you know, our COO who was like, you know, if you're going to live your principles, you got to have the conversation with them. And we had the, I had the conversation about why I'm passing. Um, because that was the only way I thought that actually might have some change in the world or impact. And was this a situation where the, it was just a disagreement on principles, where they understood that they stood on the other side of a principle? Or was this something where the investor didn't even know that they were doing something that you that 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 was aware that you were aware i don't of. think they agreed with my interpretation uh, with how i think they live and act and but that but that's fine but like I'm, I'm i'm not working and is there any level of specificity just to make this more real for the founders on you know what those principles might have been or and you don't have to if, if that's the level of of share that you feel comfortable with yeah i mean the, the yeah i i mean everybody's principles are going to be different right and so but for mine you know i i I picture, you know, who are people I want to be in the foxhole with? Who are people I want to work with? How do they treat other people? Um, and, you know, how do they treat other people that have less power than than them? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it came out for you that they violated those principles by talking to others. So so I think I think the takeaway that I want to get to the founders is, is that the real way to know what an investor is like is, is I think, ultimately their principles, which is, I think, exhibited by their actions. And 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 the only and the way to know that is to talk to other founders that they've typically backed or other people that is that is that you have to before that, taking yeah. any money from an investor when you get an investor on your board they are with you potentially for life it is easier to get a to end a relationship to divorce somebody than it is to get rid of a board member so you got to choose this is somebody I'm okay to work with for the rest of my life potentially so. The, I think besides spending a whole bunch of time with them, the best way to do that is talk to other entrepreneurs that have worked with them. And you want to talk to other entrepreneurs who companies did not do well. If the company did, did the company's performed well, usually everybody's like, everybody's ha- everybody's good. It's like you want to talk to an entrepreneur where this board member, this potential investor you're thinking of was on their board and stuff went really bad. And how did they act? And I think I think what's amazing also about this story is not just that you found out that through the back channel that there was a violation of principles, but then you also said that it's not enough just for me to politely pass, but I have to actually tell the investor that they're otherwise I wasn't living my my, my principles. And I, I, yeah. and I think the 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 va- if you, it might hurt hurt you in the short term, but I don't want to live life breaking my my core values. And I figure in the long run it will it's going to be worth it. And how soon would you recommend you articulate your principles as a company? I think it takes a little bit of time for them to actually occur and happen. You have to go through a few things to do it. If you can do it before before you start, that's amazing and great. I think for us, it probably took a couple, you know, I, I don't know if it was a year or something. I'm trying to think the first time we used principles but it took us a little time to like figure out what are the things we actually care about. Um, and then you start putting it all over the all, all over the place, so everybody knows. Okay, terrific. I'm going to open it up for questions now with the, the, uh, the students. We've got a bunch of questions, and they've been upvoted. So I'm going to go from the most popular ones down. Um, the first question is: How did you successfully recruit those first few famous and busy people to teach classes when you did not already have the reputation for them to trust you, and it was just the very beginning? I mean, cold calls and cold, cold emails. Um, one of the first was James. Pat James, Pat James, Pat James, James Patterson, who's like the best-selling author in the country. I sent lots of cold emails and notes. I mean, lots and lots of them. 
and um and then one one day i'm walking in santa Mo- santa monica and i get a call on my on my cell phone it's from a phone number i don't rec- i don't re- i don't rec- i don't re- i don't recognize which is like but i answered it i don't know why i answered it now i wouldn't probably right and um and he's like hi this is james patterson and i was so unsmooth i was like the author and he's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm really surprised to hear from you. And James like, well, I'm a surprising guy. And I was like, okay, well now he's funny, right? And he's like, I saw your, I saw your proposal. The timing works. I would love to, I would love to teach. And you're like, oh. And in my head, I'm like, wait, how do I know if this is really James Patterson? I like, like, is it a friend playing a prank? What is it? And then you know, we met, we met him. We spent time with him. And um, but it was cold. It was cold calls and cold emails for the most part. I think one of the things that we we try to do was think, okay, what is it that these folks care a lot about? Well, these folks, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not about, it's not about money. They can do an American Express commercial and earn much more money. It's like they, there's somebody in their life that taught them that had a big impact on them that they want to give back. Okay. Well, that's one thing. Two is they're going to care a lot that it's good. I mean, they're putting their names on it. It's going to be out in the world. They want to make sure. Okay. How can I show that? I don't come from film background, but there are other folks I can work with. So, for example, uh, Bill Gutentag, who's a professor at Stanford who does some film classes. I talked to him, and we went to him and asked him for advice. And he's like, I'm willing to shoot a few. And you're like, wait, really? Because if you're willing to do that, this is going to be a much easier process. Jay Roach is a director who did the same thing. And so by attaching these, some of these folks, it was a sign that – they could trust it was going to be high. It was going to, it was going to be something that it was good. They, they could, they were able to be proud of it. That's terrific. How many cold emails just out of curiosity did you have to send? Do you think before you got your first bite? Oh, I mean, probably in the, in the, in the hundreds. And I think one thing I learned was lots of people are going to tell you that your idea is impossible. Those same people after the idea works are going to tell you, I always told you it was a great idea. But the important part is when somebody says impossible, I used to get discouraged about it, to be honest, and like sad about it a little bit because like you're trying any signal or sign that your idea is going to work. And so anybody who says something bad about it, it like it hurts. I was looking at that completely wrong. When somebody says an idea is impossible, chase that idea because what any start, any startup, if you're, it's your idea or you're going to join somebody else's, you have, you have to believe in the impossible, you have to believe in something that the rest of the world thinks cannot be done. Otherwise, they would do it, or they think it's just a bad idea. So you're by you have you have to get okay with that. And now you can look at that when something's impossible. Like, ooh, if they think it's impossible, that might mean it's opportunity there. Actually, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, the next question is: um, Would you say that COVID nineteen boosted the popularity of masterclass because everyone had more time at home? and is now more used to the online learning format. And I know you were referencing this before about how you were reacting with COVID-19 with your principals. Would love to hear you talk more about COVID-19, how that's affected you and how you approached the change. Yeah, I mean, um, first thing uh, we did was we reached out to folks, you know, advisors that had been there before, quite a strong point of view. And one of them was Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE. He gave great advice. He has been through three macro shocks. And he said, hey, one of the pieces of advice is you have to hold two different truths in your head at the same time. This is like unlocking the like board for me, right? Because like, what? 
I don't even I don't even know what that means. And he's like, you have to figure out two different truths on different extremes that you have to hold in your head at the same time. And as a species, we are very bad at that. We do not like ambiguity or uncertainty. And so I realized the two different truths I needed to hold was one, this is going to screw our business. People aren't going to want to buy classes anymore. It's going to be possible to shoot anything and we're going to be in a really bad spot. The other truth is say, hey, this is an opportunity for us to really live our mission. And people are going to be at home. They're going to want to be educated. They're not going to be able to go go to school. And this is an opportunity for us to fill that. And so we had to hold and plan for both for both of those truths at the same time. And what ended up happening was, you know, we first we we then decided to write down our all our principles. Number one was what we care most about is safety, the safe the safe the safety of our team instructors. Everything else comes after that. Number two was we have to hold two different truths in our head. Right and do it, and so we came up with the whole list of principles, and so you know we got everybody out of the. We made sure no people didn't have to be at the office. Um, you know, tried to be as safe as possible wherever we can. We did see a surge in uh, in people want wanting our classes. So it depends on the week, but there were some days and weeks where we were up a thousand percent year over year. Um, but what it really did in the long run is just accelerate current trends. I think. Um, trends we always believed were going to happen. People love to learn. People want to learn. They they actually want to be in charge of, of how they learn on their own. They want they want to have joy from it. They want to have impact on their life. They want to do it at home. Um, things that we had believed for years. Hmm. That's great. Um, there's a there's a class a question. I don't know if you can answer this or pick your favorite child. So it's your your, your prerogative. But the question is, what is your favorite course on MasterClass? Yeah, it is like picking a favorite child. I'll tell you some. I was surprised how much I loved. Uh, Hans Zimmer uh, class. I have like a horror. I like. I can't keep at like the the beat. I I don't have a good sense of 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 rhythm. Um, and so you know any choir class I had to take at school, I was always put in the back row, and you know just like you don't really need to sing that loudly, David. Right? And so taking the Hans Zimmer class where, you know, we, you know, working on Hans Zimmer and taking the Hans Zimmer class and he begins a class basically by saying every note either asks or answers a question. I'm like, what kind I mean, I'm like, I don't believe this. This is everybody's saying this. I, I don't know what he's talking about. And then he's like, let me show you an example. And he plays like, here is a nice question. And he plays a note on the piano. Here is a nice answer. Here is a sketchy answer. I'm like, wait, what? I could hear that. And you're like, whoa. And you realize like for him, every note is about telling a story. And that class has completely changed how I hear music. Well, well thank you. I'm going to I'm, I'm watch that tomorrow. Um, next question. What do you consider to be Masterclass's strongest and most direct competition? Independent content creators on YouTube? University-sponsored edX courses, selected professors from the great courses, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, original content. That's a good question. Um, I don't really think of any of those as competitors. I think in our consumer insights work, what we learned is when people are deciding between us and spending their money on some something else, it's about other things that can improve their own life. So it's other classes, workshops, other self-improvement, self-development, you know, on certain things like on meditation or, you know, things to improve your life, develop your life. What we compete against the traditional 
OTT players is actually on time spent. So the time that we steal away are from entertainment platforms. Um, I, I don't, uh, to be honest, we we are in a space where there's not direct comp- there's not direct folks who are competing against us yet because um, it's really about this intersection of education and entertainment. Um, I think those other things are complements more so. There's a related question here on Ted. Do you think about Ted as a competitor? No. 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 Okay. Okay. Um, the next question is, what's your assessment on the interplay between certification, education, and qualification? How do you recommend people highlight their self-directed education that doesn't yield a diploma degree or a certificate? Really, 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 really great question. I think, and we've seen this happen, more and more importance and weight will be put to your skills and what you've created. And so I think there, as your own career grows, what school you went to has less weight. Cause it was, and so I think as much as you can to show people either in the application process, interview process, you're look, looking for jobs, even when you're on the job, the job interviews is to show your work. So something like I really believe is true. If you want a job, the best way I think to get it is to do a piece of work for the company and show it to them. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, during, during school, I really wanted to intern at IDEO. So I wanted to intern. And so IDEO has an application process. And I was like, look, I got to convince them that like I can enter there because I was a supply chain guy. There's no way IDEO is going to even look at me. So I decided to spend days and days and days of my time in baggage claims at airports. And I put together a book that was, here's how I would improve baggage claims at airports. And my application, I sent them that book. I got it printed on like one of the printing websites on Vistaprint or something like that. Um, And I got an interview because that in the first interview, they're like, so what's this book about? <laughs> right. And doing it. But like, it was all like, here's all the observations I had of the baggage claim. Here's why I think they aren't, why everybody hates them. Here's the steps I would do to improve them. And in that process, A, it shows I really care about the job. Two is they're starting to see, even though I never like worked in design, right. Or innovation, they're going to tell just by the book, was a well-designed book? Like, how, does this meet our standards or not? They're going to see my thought my thought process. That was a ton of work, but I ended up getting an internship. Hey, there you go. There you go. Well, I don't, this question is going to sort of be dovetailing that in, 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 a, in, a, in a countervailing way. But um, this question is, how is business school, how has Stanford Business School helped you in your career up to and during your entrepreneurial journey? Would you recommend business school? I think there's this myth that like business schools like entrepreneurs do not get M- MBAs. I get offended by that. Um, I, I think you can learn a tremendous amount in an MBA program that's going to help, going to going to going to help you in your entrepreneur and you know, being an entrepreneur. I think here are the big things I I took I took I took away from it. One was I figured out what my compare what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. I thought I was really quantitative. At my previous jobs, I was one of the most quant- quantitative people there. And I get to Stanford, and I'm not one of the most quantitative pe- folks there. I'm taking a compute a a, a a CS class, and it's taking me like eight out eight hours to do the homework pro- pro- problems, and my friend is getting them done in an hour. And like I'm like, 
what is going on, right? And you just like, I realized that wasn't my comparative advantage. And like, if I wanted to be very quantitative and like, that's what I wanted my career to be, I ha- I was gonna have a lot of work to do to actually do it. And I realized, okay, what are the things that I actually am good at compared to other people? That was immensely helpful. I think the other part that's immensely helpful is you learn about people and professions that like, I just didn't know existed. Um, I didn't have friends that worked in PE before or in product. And like, that was news for me to understand. And the third, there were professors and classes that ways of thinking that just expanded my mind a little bit that, you know, it, it goes back to like our unknown unknowns. Like it helps you figure out, turn unknown unknowns into, into hopefully either known unknowns or to known knowns. Yeah, that's great. PE guy, by the way, is private equity for all you non people. Sorry, sorry. I just said that because I didn't know what that was until I, I, yeah, yeah. One final question. We're almost out of time. And I'm going to ask, just exercising my prerogative to ask a final question. When has it been the most fun to be the CEO of Masterclass? At what stage? Um, Oh, every, um, every stage is, uh, what's the most fun? What's the most fun? Um, there are just days you'll never forget. Um, there's days and that can be, um, you know, we were on, on set with Christina Aguilera, well, on the Christina Aguilera shoot and, you know, she just starts singing like acapella without like doing this, like this is the practice for her class to do it. And it just like blows you. And you're like, you're like, if we can figure out this magic to put into the class, like that, it, it like this is going to work, right? And then people put it up on the web, and you'll see it, it's like amazing. Um, and so there's parts like that. There's a part um, I love Chipotle, and I eat Chipotle a lot. And wh- and we do a thing every year where it's a, a it, we do a costume co- a costume con- a costume contest for Halloween. And one day, and one for one year, there was a group on the team that dressed up. Not only as Chipotle, but as the food order that I eat all the time. <laughs> and you're like, it was so that's funny. Nice. And it's being teased in a way with love. And you know, you're like, that's just amazing. That's just amazing. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.